Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning. Open them to the book of Exodus, chapter 22. This morning we will read verses 1 through 17. I believe, and I hope it's not presumptuous for me to say we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Amen. That God's Word is sufficient for our lives, for what we need, and sufficient for the most important things in our lives. And it's sufficient in Exodus 22. It's sufficient enough that we would say, we're not going to skip over it. We're not going to pretend it's not there. We're going to read it. I'm going to try to preach it. Because it's God's Word. And God's Word brings life. God's Word is truth. And it's what God uses to sanctify His people. So, even Exodus 22, we're reminded that we believe in the sufficiency of God's Word. And that it would say something to us this morning. Even though it was written thousands of years ago, it's still God's Word. It's still true. And it's still relevant. I don't have to make God's word relevant. It is relevant. Just like I don't have to make God relevant. He is relevant all the time, every day, all day. So we thank him for his word. Let's stand together then and read Exodus 22, the first 17 verses. When I get to verse 17, after I finish reading that, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And together we will say, thanks be to God. Exodus 22. Hear the word of the Lord. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. 
If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for a hiring fee. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Most merciful Father, Since it has pleased you to reveal the mysteries of your will only to the little ones, and since you look to him alone who is of a humble and contrite spirit, who has reverence for your word, grant us a humble spirit and keep us from all fleshly wisdom, which is at enmity with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In his letter to Philemon, the Apostle Paul pleads with Philemon to be reconciled to his runaway slave Onesimus, to grant him forgiveness as his brother in Jesus Christ. And at the end of that short letter, Paul says this to Philemon, so if you consider me your partner, receive him, that is Onesimus, as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. In an amazing turn of events, Paul says he will pay the penalty. He will pay the fines. He will even pay what perhaps Onesimus might have stolen from Philemon when he ran away. What's even more amazing is if we consider that Paul at this time is writing from prison. He doesn't have great sums of money to pay Onesimus' fines. Yet he reminds Philemon of a greater reality. Onesimus might owe you money of which I'm willing to pay, says Paul, but You owe me your spiritual life as the one who brought you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Could it be that Paul was even calling Philemon to consider the grace of God in his own life as he accepts Onesimus back into his fold, into his house, even after what he could rightly exact from him as a fugitive? Paul was willing to make restitution. He was willing to make it right by paying the penalty of what Onesimus owed Philemon. Onesimus had sinned. He had wronged Philemon. But there was a way back to reconciliation. Have you ever heard someone say, who wronged another, what can I do to make it right? How can I fix it? Maybe you've heard others respond to that request. How would people respond? Someone says, what can I do to make it right? Could it be that sometimes people would say, there's nothing that you can do to make it right. I've been so hurt. I've been so offended. There is nothing that you can do. And in this way, they can hold on to that offense and oftentimes they are ready and willing to bring it up whenever it is convenient for them. 
They hold it over their heads. And there you hang, maybe perhaps in a perpetual state of unforgiveness. Another equally wrong response is that when someone asks, what can I do to make it right? (laughs) You would multiply exponentially what it would take to make something right, so much so that it becomes too much. Here's a laundry list of all the things that you need to do. And if you do this huge laundry list of things, then and only then will I forgive you. It goes beyond what is reasonable. It's more about exacting revenge than about making it right. And both of these responses, whether it's saying there's nothing you can do, or whether it's saying here is more than, more than what you should even do, both of those responses are ungodly. Last week we began to discuss the fact that when people live in close proximity to one another, there is bound to be injury, there is bound to be physical injury, there is bound to be physical harm, but there also is the possibility that things that belong to you could be damaged or harmed as well. And in this section of Exodus, in this section of the book that's called the Book of the Covenant, God lays out how the people are to live before Him in relationship and how they also are to live with one another. And let's never divorce those two things because too often I think we might divorce them in our minds. Think about what the Lord is saying here. He's saying this is the book of the covenant and a covenant is about a relationship and he's saying this book of the covenant is describing my relationship with my people, how God and his people are to live together as one, but it's also about how God's people are to live with one another. And those two things go hand in hand. You can't say you love God and treat your brother one way. And you cannot say, well, as long as I just love my neighbor, it doesn't matter if I love God or not. Both of these relationships go together. And so we see that in the book of the covenant. And particularly, our text this morning deals with those commandments that came in the ten words, the ten commandments, remember them? Particularly the eighth and the seventh word, thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not commit adultery. And now, here in the book of the covenant, God begins to expound on those to get more specific about what it means not to steal and what it means not to commit adultery. And as we read through this text, I wonder if you heard God repeat himself over and over again. For remember, this is God speaking. God repeating himself over and over again about making restitution. God is a God who approves of making restitution. So let's just run through the text here real quick. Verse 1, repay. Verse 3, pay. Verse 4, pay double. Verse 5, make restitution. Verse 6, make full restitution. Verse 7, pay double. Verse 9, pay double. Verse 11, restitution. Verse 12, restitution. Verse 13, restitution. Verse 14, restitution. Verse 15, restitution. Verse 16, give the bride price. Verse 17, pay money equal to the bride price. I mean, you hear this repetition over and over of what God is saying. And I run through that quickly because We might miss it as I perhaps read the text the first time. We see throughout this text the need in certain situations to make it right between people. There are consequences to sin. And in these sinful actions, we see restitution is required by God to make things right. What does it mean to make restitution? It has this idea of having to pay or to repay, or in some cases, as we see here, to pay double. Making restitution means you are having to compensate someone for the loss that you have caused. You have caused damage, you have caused harm, you've done something, and now you have to compensate that person for the wrong that you have done. What's fascinating That the word that's repeated here over and over again is closely related 
to perhaps a word that you've heard before, and that word is shalom. You know that word in the Hebrew? Hebrew, it's shalom. Oftentimes we translate it peace. This idea of making restitution is related to this word shalom. Making restitution is more than just making a payment. It's making payment in regards to making something complete, to restoring wholeness again to the situation and to the relationship. It is finishing the matter. It is bringing satisfaction to resolve the situation. Interestingly, if you go to the major prophets, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah, Yahweh, the Lord, is the one who is often the one bringing retribution upon his enemies and reward to the people that do good deeds. And what's interesting, it's the same verb there used of the Lord. The Lord repaying the enemies for what they deserve and the Lord rewarding or paying his people for what they deserve. And in that way, through it all, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, why does the Lord do that? To make things right, to make things whole, to make things the way that they are supposed to be, to bring completeness, to make it right again until shalom, peace, is achieved. And so as we think about this underlying idea here of why the Lord would want there to be restitution made, it's because the Lord wants to live at peace with His people and the Lord wants His people to live at peace with one another. As we are going through the law, I hope that it highlights how so often we fall short of what God intends. We see ourselves as sinners when we look in the mirror of the law. So we need, again, to look at God's law to see who God is, to see who we are, and to see how we should respond and live. Why does the Lord require for restitution to be made in these certain scenarios? Well, I think there are four reasons that come to light. You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful, but number one, making restitution reveals the harm done to the innocent. Making restitution reveals the harm that is done to the innocent. Many different scenarios here in these verses. And notice that the harm is done with various even intentions. Sometimes it's deliberate. something stolen. Sometimes it's negligence or irresponsibility. The cows got out and they're feeding in someone else's pasture. You started a fire and, and it caught your neighbor's field on fire. You were supposed to be watching something or taking care of something and the beasts came and tore up your neighbor's livestock. Whatever happens, there's an innocent, innocent party that's been harmed and it needs to be made right. And a distinctive of God's law, if we were to take God's law here as we read about it in these verses and we were to compare it with pagan laws at this time, there is a difference. God's law focus isn't merely on the crime committed, but it leads to a focus on the harm done. So when we say then that there's this payment or this restitution that needs to happen, someone was affected by the crime that you committed. It was not a victimless crime. You did something and it affected somebody else. There was an innocent person in that. And so there are consequences to that sin. And that's easy to say when we're the ones sinned against, right? It's easy to say when that happens to us. Yeah, they need to pay me for what they've done. And how difficult it is to accept, even resist it, if you are the one that's doing the sinning, or you're the one that's caused it. In these first four verses of our text, we see a specific scenario of a thief that steals an ox or a sheep, and he kills it or he sells it. 
So what happens then? He is to repay, right? Five oxen for an ox, four sheep for a sheep. I think the difference between these numbers is fairly obvious. Why five oxen, but why only four sheep for a sheep? Well, oxen were worth more. They could plow your field. They were a more costly offering. You would get more meat from an ox if you were to slaughter an ox. So you have to pay five ox for one ox that you would kill or sell. Pay four sheep for one sheep that you killed or sold. It would cost the thief more if he slaughtered or sold an ox. And then we come to this interesting parenthetical statement in verse 2. If the thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So here's this scenario of a thief that's breaking in to someone's house. The idea here of breaking in is this idea of digging or tunneling. So they're digging in or tunneling into the house through the wall. And the people who are living in the house, they don't know exactly what's happening, and they strike the thief and he dies. They are not held guilty for that sin. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be, there shall be blood guilt on him. So now we're given even further explanation. This initial breaking in was not happening during the day. It was happening at night. You didn't see what was going on. You didn't know the intentions of this person. They're just trying to get in your house. They're struck. They're killed. There is blood guilt. But if it is day, if it's daylight, you can see what's going on. You maybe even have a greater chance to call for help, someone else to help you come and subdue this person to stop them. So here, even this distinction of made, is, is it happening at night? Is it happening during the day? If it's happening during the day, it doesn't mean you just go and kill the person. You have a greater chance to even spare their life in that. Just because they're thieving doesn't mean that they deserve to die. Then it comes back to what happens if the thief steals. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So he will have to pay by servitude, by serving in some way, until he makes payment for everything that he has stolen. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, so if he didn't slaughter it, or if he didn't sell it, then he just has to pay double for the ox or for the sheep. Interesting how here, it's all proportionate to the crime that's done and the harm that's done. It never goes beyond what's necessary. It never exacts more than what God requires. But they are to repay. Sometimes much, if the harm is great. Sometimes not as much, paying only double if the animal is alive. And I think the underlying idea there is alive and in good health. You give it back to that person. <laughs> Interesting now as we come to verses 5 and 6. Here's judgments or laws that deal with more irresponsibility or negligence. So if your beast causes damage in another person's field... You're to make restitution, and not stingy restitution, not just like, well, how much can I pay? But give them the best of your vineyard. Give them the best of your field to make restitution for what's happened. Not only are you, are you to make restitution if your livestock consume a field, but you're also to make restitution if fire that you started consumes a field, and the harvest in particular. If a fire breaks out and catches in the thorns, the thorns are known for being that which burn quickly. So if the fire gets in the thorns, the fire is going to spread. And oftentimes, sometimes even these thorns were used as hedges between people's fields. If that happens, you're still to make full restitution for the fire that you started. And it's not necessarily like and arson. It's if you were burning in your own field and it just transferred over, you're still to make restitution. But notice again, it's proportionate. It's controlled. 
You can't ask for six oxen just because you love the oxen that they stole a little bit more than your other oxen. No, it's five oxen. You can't ask for ten sheep even though they only stole one sheep. And through all of this, we see that there is harm done to other people. Your sin affects others. Your negligence affects others. And so there is a physical representation of the harm done. Sometimes shown that you have to even pay more. It's not just sometimes that you have to make restitution, but in the the sin of stealing, you have to pay more, pay double, pay fivefold or fourfold for what you have done. Do we ever take that to heart? My sin affects other people. My sin affects my wife. My sin affects my children. My sin affects my church. My sin affects the place where I live, my neighbors perhaps. My sin affects other people. What sin in your life is there that you think, I can have this sin and no one else is going to need to know about it. No one else is going to be affected by it. That is not true. Our lives affect other people. Making restitution reveals the harm done to the innocent. Number two, the second reason. Making restitution reveals, oh, I'm sorry, reverses the outcome desired by the thief. Making restitution reverses the outcome desired by the thief. Think of this. Why does the thief in these verses, why does he steal? Why does he take what is not his? Because he wants to get ahead. Because he wants more. He's decided in that moment that God's sovereignty isn't enough. That the Lord hasn't provided enough. That the Lord isn't good enough. That the Lord has been stingy with his own life. And he needs something else. He needs something more. And so the way that he's going to get more is he's going to go out and take it. And in that moment of taking, he thinks, this is going to be to my advantage. This might make me more wealthy. This might give me more food. Whatever it is, I'm going to take it, and it's going to be to my advantage. But what happens when he has to make restitution? What happens when he has to repay double, or fivefold, or fourfold? It impoverishes him. He thought he was doing something to get ahead. But in his sin, he ends up with less than what he had to begin with. Isn't this the way it is with our sin in our lives in general? We think we are going to get ahead. We think that we are going to feel better. We think that we are going to get what we really want. We think that we are going to be satisfied. We think that we will be able to secure better blessings for ourselves, for our passions that wage war within us. What promises, what promises have your sinful flesh made to you? If you do this, You'll get ahead, you'll feel better, you'll like it. All of those are empty promises. We are left more empty, more unsatisfied, more distraught, more despairing. We are empty for our own selfish and prideful attempts to do what we think God has failed to do. Making restitution is a tangible, visible, physical lesson to the thief and to the sinner that the desired outcome ends up being reversed in God's economy. And not only do you end up harming others, you end up also harming yourself. Number three, making restitution reminds us that God knows everything. Making restitution reminds us God knows everything. In the second half of our text, it all revolves around you giving something to your neighbor for them to keep safe. 
So, verses 7 through 9, you are giving your neighbor either money or particular goods for them to watch over, to keep safe. In verses 10 through 13, it's you giving them livestock for safekeeping. But there's a scenario here in verses 7 and following where you, where someone would give something to their neighbor for safekeeping and it's stolen from the man's house. If the thief is found, he pays double. We understand that. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. What's going on here? If the person comes and says, hey, where's my stuff? You can't just say, ah, well, it was stolen. I don't know. If it was stolen and you caught the thief, there's evidence, right? Your stuff was stolen, we caught the thief, he paid double. But if it was stolen and you didn't catch the thief, it keeps the owner of the house, the one who's supposed to be watching it, the one who's supposed to be safekeeping it, it keeps him accountable. Why? Because he could have stolen it. <laughs> he could have taken it. And it's interesting here what happens. He comes near to God to show whether he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. That's the end of verse 8. He comes near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. Did he steal it when he was supposed to be watching over it? How do you know? It's this idea of you come before God and you make an oath before God saying, before the Lord, I did not steal your money or your stuff. Now, there is a variation in some translations. They talk about coming near to the judges. So if the owner of the house shall come near to the judges, or later on, at the end of verse 9, both parties shall come before the judges instead of before God. The one whom the judges condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. I don't think that translation is right. I think it should be come before God. The word is Elohim. In fact, Moses, other places, uses the word judges. So I think here it's this person coming before God or these parties coming before God. And I think it's making this point that God is the one who sees everything. He knows everything. And you're going to have to give an account to him for what you've done. And look at what it says. I love this. Verse 9. For every breach of trust, whether it is an ox, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it. What does that mean? There's no finders keepers in God's economy. You can't say, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. In this case, both parties shall come before God. God's going to get to the bottom of it. He's going to take care of it. Because God knows what has gone on. God knows everything. God knows who is telling the truth. God knows if there is theft that has taken place or not. And God's judgment is perfect. The party whom the Lord condemns is the guilty party and will pay double. They will have to make restitution, and it's all based upon the fact that they are living in relationship with the all-seeing, all-knowing God. He is omniscient. You think you might be able to get away with it. You might fool your neighbor. You might be able to pull over the wool, over his eyes, but you are not going to fool God. And if there is any fear of the Lord in the people it would not even have to get to this point if they knew God sees and knows their heart perfectly if they've done something wrong if they have stolen from their neighbor they would make it right before they even get to coming before God there's the truth that God knows everything in your life that he sees everything that he is intimately acquainted with all of the nooks and crannies of your heart, does that make any difference 
in the way that you go about and live your life. It does if the fear of the Lord is in you. Second Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. How can Christ make that judgment? Because he knows. He knows what we've done. If the transcendent and holy God is the one who sees us in our lives and everything that we do and makes all the difference in the world. It gives us a view towards His greatness, His majesty, and His glory. And our life then becomes more about honoring and exalting and proclaiming Him than about anything else. More than about getting ahead. Making restitution reminds us God knows everything. And number four, making restitution recognizes the guilt of our sin. Making restitution recognizes the guilt of our sin and the deliverance that we have in Christ. Making restitution recognizes the guilt of our sin and the deliverance we have in Christ. This last point, I just want to make a beeline to the last two verses, 16 and 17 in our text. I see these verses as the pinnacle, the apex of what you will, of this section of Scripture. Everything else has been leading us to this. We might have prized possessions, we might have prized property, things that we care about, things that we care for, even property that is necessary for our livelihood, our income, our source of existence. But what do parents prize more than their children? Here is a great treasure of our lives. We watch over them. We care for them. We protect them. And it would madden us and enrage us that someone would take something from us and use it for their own selfish gain and in the end destroy it, whether deliberately or even negligently. But how much more if someone would do that with one of our own children? But that is what this man does. He seduces a virgin who is not betrothed. What does that mean? There has been no contractual or formal agreement made concerning marriage. Betrothal is like engagement, although it's more binding because it is a a contract. And so here there's no contract, there's no No looking towards the marriage covenant in the future. It's just a man seducing a virgin. And notice, this is not rape. It is consensual. He then is to pay the bride price, and he may make her his wife. Remember, with every covenant, there is a sign. So with the Noahic covenant, there is a sign of the rainbow. With the Abrahamic covenant, there's the sign of circumcision. With the Mosaic covenant, there's the sign of the Sabbath rest. What is the covenant sign of marriage? So marriage between a man and a woman is a covenant. They come together. It's this relationship. What is the sign of marriage? I'll give you one guess. It's them becoming one flesh. That's the sign of marriage. And what's going on here? A man and a virgin practicing the marriage sign before the marriage covenant. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Premarital sex is not the design set in place by the Lord. And this was to protect the virgin so that the man could not love her and leave her. Just love her and dump her off. He would have to pay, whether it's pay to make her his wife or pay if the father refuses. It's to protect, protect the virgin, protect the woman. 
The man cannot dishonor the girl. He cannot devalue her by sleeping with her and not paying the full bride price. It would be acting like a cheat. Now he is bound to an obligation. And the first path forward is that he pays the bride price to the father as was customary. So he would become her wife. But there's another path. If, the fa- if her father utterly refuses to give her to him. If the father says, no, I'm going to protect you from this man. This is not a good man. And he will not allow his daughter to marry this man. He will still have to pay the bride price. And this is a large amount of money. This is not no, no small sum. This is a hefty price that he is having to pay. And in the end, he gets nothing. He gets no wife. Why would he still have to pay such a large amount of money if the father utterly refused? Well, in the land now, she is no longer a virgin. And she would be considered damaged goods by the rest of society. It even threatens the possibility of her ever getting married in the community of God's people. So requiring the full bride price protects the father and the daughter from the harm that he has caused by seducing her and sleeping with her. He, in effect, has stolen, stolen something from her, her virginity, that cannot be restored. And he has to pay the full bride price. But in the end, he receives no bride for what he has done. What do all of these things have to do with us? I mean, the first 15 verses, most of it, not all of it, but most of it is talking about stealing something. And then in the end, verses 16 and 17, a man seducing a virgin and the consequences of that action. What in the world does that have to do with us? Are you a thief? Do you steal? Are you a kleptomaniac? I suspect most of us would say, you know, thieving is not really a besetting sin of mine. I'm not a thief. I haven't taken anything. I haven't stolen. How does this pertain to me? What if all of this is pointing to a greater thieving? In fact, the most colossal heist that's been attempted on a grand and cosmic scale. A stealing that is worse than even stealing from our fellow man. It's a stealing from God. Where we try to steal His glory. Where we would rather have glory for ourselves rather than give glory to Him. We are image thieves saying we want to define ourselves. We want to be made in our own image, not in God's image. We want to determine who we are. I want to be who I am. Let me define myself. Could it be that we are knowledge thieves? I don't want God's knowledge. My knowledge is good. I will attain knowledge for myself. Just like Eve in the garden What was she tempted with? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not enough that God gives me knowledge. I'm going to go out and I'm going to find my own knowledge. We are kingdom thieves. I want to be the king. I want to rule my own kingdom. I don't want to be in God's kingdom. We are creation thieves. The thing that God has created, we take those things and now we begin to worship those created things rather than the creator. We are power thieves. We want the power. We want control. We are control thieves. We are joy thieves. I'm going to give myself joy. I'm not going to get joy from God. I'm going to find joy myself. We are love thieves.
We are identity thieves. We've committed the greatest identity theft by saying, I'm not going to let God define who I am. I'm going to define who I am. I'm going to make up my own identity. It's not going to have anything to do with God. How can we make restitution for all of our thieving against God? We can't. There is no way that we can make restitution to God for all the sin and all the wrong that we have done. But Christ makes restitution for us. He paid the penalty. He paid the price that was necessary so that we could be forgiven. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1, verses 17 through 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What was it? What did it take to make restitution on our behalf? It took the precious blood of Jesus Christ to pay the price, to pay the penalty. That paid more than we could ever pay in and of ourselves for all of our sin, for all of our thieving. Jesus Christ paid the bride price for damaged goods. We were the damaged goods. We were the ones who were seduced by the world. And it wasn't all the world's fault. It was our fault too. We go out looking for other things that we think will satisfy. We go out looking to connect ourselves and enjoin ourselves and be one flesh with other things out there in the world that we think this is going to bring me security. This is going to bring me love. This is going to bring me what I really want. And it never does. Our love was a selfish love. And there are only two kinds of love. There is selfish love or there is divine love. One is a love defined by the world. It is a love for the things of the world. It is a love held captive by the desires of the flesh. That was us in verses 16 and 17 of Exodus 22. But there is another love, a divine love, a love that is defined by God, that is selfless, that is willing to deny self, that is able to put to death the desires of the flesh by the Holy Spirit. That is a love that only we can know from God. Having been seduced, we are damaged goods, but what did Jesus Christ do? He came and he took his bride who was wallowing in her own blood, who was dirty and defiled, and he washed her and cleansed her. He restored her. He brought back all of the value that had been lost. Do we ever see ourselves as the one who is unclean, has been washed by Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 with me. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We are undone. There is no way I'm getting in. But there's hope. And such were some of you. But, what? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. That's the washing, regeneration, being made new that we need, that only Christ can do. And he did that for his bride, the church. He did that loving the unlovely. Dying for his enemies. Giving himself for the down and out and despicable people such as us yet we've been transformed by Christ. The one who was willing to seek and to save the lost. And so we read about Zacchaeus, didn't we, this morning? What a beautiful picture. Lord, if I have defrauded anyone, I will restore it fourfold. Jesus pays the price and makes restitution for us, reconciles us to God. And what is the result? What comes out of that? People who are willing to make restitution and make it right. Why? Because they have been transformed by Jesus Christ. Notice what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't say, Zacchaeus, now you know you've really defrauded a lot of people. You've really stolen from them. So what you need to do is you need to go and you need to make it right. And Zacchaeus is like, well, yeah, Jesus, I guess you're right. I guess I need to go do that. No, Zacchaeus was like, I need to do this. I need to make it right. I've been transformed by Jesus. He's given me a new life. I also am a son of Abraham. Father, we remember the great sacrifice made for us on the cross of Jesus. And we thank you. Thank you for what you have done for us through sending your Son. Thank you for the life that we can have in him. Thank you for the washing that we needed to make us whole. Thank you for the new hearts we have in Christ. May we always remember the sacrifice of our Savior. Pray this in His name. Amen.